Welcome. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today our guest is Brianna Kilcullen. In just a moment, she will be with us. She is the founder of An Act. She's going to tell us all about that and what she's doing there. Daniel Hogan is in the studio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. In just a moment, we'll be back with Brianna. Thanks for listening. This land was made for you and me As I went walking that ribbon of highway I saw This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today, our guest is Brianna Collin. She is the founder of Enact. Hello, Brianna, and thank you so much for being on Heartstock. Good morning, and so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And you're in Texas, right? We are. We're based out of Austin, Texas. And how are things there in Texas this morning? We were just kind of talking earlier. We're having a, I'm recording here in our home studio, and we're having a little bit of a rain this morning, little lovely spring rain. Yes, Um, it's good here. I think it's, I was actually just camping in Big Bend this past weekend, so it's my first time going out to West Texas, and so I still have I think the desert energy. So there was definitely no no spring happening. Well, a little bit of spring out there, but very dry and a lot of altitude. Mm, that sounds nice. So give our listeners a little intro. What is an act and what it is that you're doing there? Of course. So an act is short for an act of kindness, an act of goodwill. I wanted to create a company that held myself accountable to taking one act a day uh, to create the the vision in the future that I believe in and that we need to do in order to evolve the textile industry um, past this linear model and very decentralized model that it has become. And I think an act is really just me alchemizing all my experiences working in the apparel industry, working for various brands, Um, in supply chain and manufacturing and sustainability and saying, okay, this is what I've learned in my 20s. And now I'm going to alchemize this into this company that I believe holds immense value for people in the planet. And what is your product? Um, Do you have several products or tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we do. So part of an act was really how do we make better products than what we see on the market And so we have three different things that we essentially provide. We one, make a sustainable bath towel. I hate the smell of mildewy bath towels and hemp naturally resists the growth of bacteria. So it made sense to me to have a hemp-based bath towel. I didn't see anyone doing that on the market. And so that is where the original problem I saw that we could create and and provide more value. So we have a chemical dye-free hemp and organic cotton-based towel that comes in various sizes. Um, We have two different colorways. We do some accessories just so people want to be connected to the brand can wear those products. And then what we also do is we provide community events 
um, where we do either jogs or documentary screenings, just to get people together and connected around the same values. Um, in addition to not just saying like, hey, buy our product, but also like really bringing people together. And then the last thing we do is we're focused on infrastructure. How do we bring manufacturing back to the U.S., specifically back to Texas and have farmers growing hemp and creating manufacturing um, and able to make our product uh, within a hundred mile radius of where we distribute. So those are the three things. But right now, if you were to to find us or come to Austin, you could purchase our products and join us on the jog. Purchase your products during the summer jog. Is that what you said? Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. So to be a part of our community um, right now, you would be able to purchase our product online or wholesale. And then um, we do have in-person community events based in Austin, Texas as well. Gotcha. Okay. And you mentioned working for several different brands in the past. And did you go to fashion design school? Yeah, that's so funny. I did not. I was actually just chatting with a friend about this earlier this week that I did not expect to be in this industry. I was really focused on humanitarian work in East Africa, really fascinated by just international development space. And that was what my degree was in. And so I was really focused on that. And then I had a couple of personal um, incidents happen where it brought me back to the U.S. And so at the time, Under Armour was hiring and recruiting and I had supply chain backgrounds and um, was interested in sustainability and had traveled. And so I ended up in their sourcing department. Under Armour, got it. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So that's how I got into it. It was not expected. I went to school for international business and human rights and ended up there. And so I think my personality was just very focused on how do I learn this industry I'm in and, and understand it. And so that was very eye-opening for me. And it's been an industry that I've stayed in um, since I first started there and when I was 22. And you said East Africa. Can you, I would imagine that was a fascinating experience. How long were you there and what did you do when you were there? Yeah, I, again, funny people are like, how, how did you get there? I studied abroad in South Africa and in college. And then when I was graduating, I was working for the government. And I had a friend, family friend who had just gotten back. And she said, hey, if you really want to get international development experience, I highly recommend that you do a hardship post and go somewhere that most people don't really want to go and, and kind of prove yourself. And so this opportunity came up. And so I got on a one-way flight and moved to Gulu, which is on the border of Northern Uganda, South Sudan. And I just uh, started working in the humanitarian nonprofit space with going out to rural villages. And and that area that I was in is, is a post-conflict zone. So there's just a lot of missing economic infrastructure and a lot of trauma as well. And so we focused on how can we do a lot of land conflict resolution as well as getting and providing market opportunities such as pineapple and banana seeds to be able to sell into the market. So what organization were you working for at that time? The organization was called Grassroots Reconciliation Group. Mm-hmm. And there's an awful lot of additional upheaval, it seems, going on currently in that region. 
help us understand your experiences and how that may have prepared you for what you've undertaken now here in the U.S.? Yeah, I think my big experience being there was just, I think it's beautiful globalization and and able to help and, and work abroad. But I really realized like I didn't live through this war. I didn't go through this conflict. Where do I provide the most value? Perhaps really being back in my own community and being back in the places where I come from and working on those issues there. And so I think that's what pushed me to come back to the U.S. and be aware of everyone is going through things. Everyone has different stuff happening. Like, I think it for me, I think about it. And when I travel and people are astounded that we live where we live with all the mass shootings. And they're like, we don't know how you get up every day and like go out in public and feel safe. And I'm like, wow, you're, I think everyone has a different experience of what they think is upheaval. And that I think the U.S. is in quite a bit of upheaval and that we've just kind of gotten used to it. So I actually felt quite safe out there because um, there's really where I was, there's no guns. So to me, that felt a little bit safer, even if I clearly didn't live there or, or wasn't from there. Mm. And then what was your experience at Under Armour like? And how did that propel you into what you're doing now? Yes. So my experience at Under Armour was really eye-opening. I came in and I wanted to create their sustainability program. And they just said, you know, you can do that, but like focus on what we need you to do right now, which is sourcing and production. And so what was so eye-opening to me was going to my first factory visits and working in Central America and being in El Salvador and sitting on the factory line and having one of the factory owners say, hey, we're going to leave you on the factory floor and you have to learn how to thread this machine and sew a garment and understand these requests you're asking for all of these factory workers to be doing for you. And that was eye-opening. And I was just never will forget. I was just had like sweat pouring down me and I'm trying to thread the machine and I'm trying to like not get my hands stuck and just the speed and the agility of these women and the heat able to just manufacture and make all this product that then we're wearing every day. And I think that disconnect of knowing who was really doing it and the conditions and just the skill level of that, like really pushed me to want to create more transparency in the supply chain so people could understand, but also to make better working conditions as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm just kind of curious about sustainability. And, you know, we all want the planet, well, most of us want the planet to be more sustainable. What kind of barriers are there in the real world and in the places where the garments and the materials and the products are actually being made what are the real world roadblocks that you came up against? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is we don't have regulation and legislation that really holds brands accountable, I would say, to making our products. Again, I was talking to a friend about this. This is how I've been explaining it. If, for example, you open a coffee shop, you can be able to go buy 
shirts and tote bags and bandanas and hats and put your logo on it within a day. Whereas if someone were to say, like for us, hey, we want to make a custom kombucha, like we would not be able to go make that and label it and distribute it. It would take an entire process and there's a lot of regulatory requirements through the FDA. And I think that that's what is really missing as it really plates, relates to apparel. Anybody can have access to go out and buy products and distribute it. Um, there's very little checks and balances over where the product came from, the social and environmental impact, and you know, and disclosure of that or auditing of that. And so I think that that was one of the biggest takeaways I had is this has become such a massive industry that is deregulated and allows for, it's usually the first industry in a country that's underdeveloped, that's opening up, because it just relies heavily on not having any type of labor compensation that's regulated. And so you can charge a very low amount, um, which allows for brands to have a high margin and distribute. And so those were some of the bigger takeaways. That was one of the biggest takeaways I had was that this is just, it's a deregulated industry. And let's talk a little bit about the founding of an act. Uh, where did you come up with the idea? And just share with us the, the evolution and where you are today. Yeah. So it's funny. So I worked at Under Armour and then I went and worked at Prana and then I was like, okay, I have a multi-billion dollar company experience under my belt. I now have a hundred million plus company experience under my belt. Um, where do I go next? And it made sense to me to go to a startup. And I interviewed with several startups in the space. And I was like, wow, like you should be doing this amazing work, but I'm really not seeing the things I think need to be done. And that was around the same time as the 2016 election. And so I was telling my best friend, like, I really want to see this industry get regulated and infrastructure to be um, made locally and have better for you products around that. And so I grew up watching um, Donald Trump on reality TV on, a, on The Apprentice, and then I saw him become president. And so my takeaway was really nobody's driving the bus. So like, everyone should just go out and do what they want to do. And I think that realization and connection, um, politics aside, and the conversation with my best friend, she's like, yeah, you can do it. You can, you can do it. Jump out, like make it happen. And so that was really where an act was born. And then from there, it was, okay, let's make a great product. Let's make a great brand. Let's, you know, articulate our vision of what we're doing. And it, everything unfolded. And I don't know what energy I was on, but I was on one for like three, two and a half to three years straight, where like all I could do, that's all I could think about and, uh, and work and, and make happen. And then we were funded on Kickstarter. That was the first move. And then once we were funded on Kickstarter, I was like, okay, people want this. And we launched during COVID. And I think when you are an entrepreneur and you set out, you have an idea of how things will be. And then there's the reality of what unfolds. And I think being able to pivot has been really critical. But that was where an act was born. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take our midway point break. We'll be right back with Brianna in just a moment and really delve into the nuts and bolts of an act and the products. This is Heartstock. 
Thanks for listening. Welcome back. You're listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. And we're speaking with Brianna Colin, and she's the founder of Enact. We were just talking about launching your company, and you mentioned pivoting. In what ways? Well, first of all, let's talk about, you know, what year did you launch? You said it was during COVID. And then you said that it was really critical that um, you were able to pivot. So let's talk about that just a little bit, Brianna. Yeah. So we launched our Kickstarter was in 2019. And then our inventory came in March 2020, which was with the beginning of the pandemic. And so our strategy had been, we'll go out and do wholesale and we'll sell to distributors and we'll move our product that way. And with everything that shut down, we were no longer able to get it out to hotels or to spas or to attend a trade show. So we had to pivot and learn how to sell direct to customer. And so if you don't have a retail shop, that really means understanding Facebook and Instagram ads, it means social media, um, organically influencers, um, affiliate marketing, emails. So it was like a huge learning curve to have to learn algorithms of different platforms and, and where our product and brand made sense and then find our customer through those mechanisms. And we did do that. And we learned so much and gathered so much data from that. Now in 2023, we're finally back to where we wanted to be, which was moving into wholesale and having those relationships and conversations. But prior to that, it was having to to understand that landscape. And it ultimately pushed us to getting to get onto Amazon, which has been a really big driver for us. So it all worked out. But I think that pivot of here was our market strategy. This has now completely been taken away what are the options? And I had an advisor say to me, you know, this is where most people give up, but if you can buckle down and if you can really focus and allow yourself to pivot and stay true to the vision and not necessarily how you think it should unfold, you'll be able to get there. And so that was really what I would say was been the past several years um, and my experience of building the business. And the materials, I'm just aching to talk about um, <laughs> You know, you being a sourcing specialist, share that story with us. And hemp is just wonderful. How did you discover hemp? And what was your experience like creating a product that is, um, you said it was hemp cotton, right? It is, yes. Yeah, to your point, like when you work in apparel, you just start asking questions and what are natural fibers and what are synthetic fibers and where do they come from and how are they made? And how do they perform and, and what do they do after you're done with them? And so um, those were all the questions and things I was learning. And, and in sustainability at Prana, we actually had a material thermometer index that would rank them sustainability-wise and performance-wise. And so coming from Under Armour, we were mostly a synthetic-based company utilizing polyester. And moving to Prana, it was much more 
natural plant-based and then if it was synthetic it was recycled and so like learning about the rankings of these different all these different fibers and where they ranked I was so shocked when I saw that hemp was one of the best performing and the most sustainable and I was confused as to why we had not been yes utilizing it right exactly (laughs) I'm like huh this is seems the best option but we're not doing it so I think um I was in China in 2017 when they were harvesting hemp and that really set me off this kind of path of of doing research into regulation and legislation around hemp in the U.S. And so when I saw that it had been used and it was a really prevalent fiber and it was only made illegal due to the threat it posed to the cotton industry and to oil and to paper, then I was felt this level of comfort. And I just remember feeling a wave like, oh, wow, there's there's a wave coming for this for this fiber in the U.S. that I'm going to start swimming and like catch it. And that was the feeling I felt. And and being in California at the time, everyone was so focused on marijuana as it relates to cannabis. And I was like, I don't know, like I really think hemp for fiber, that's the move. And so that was really what pushed me to to go for it. And we wanted to design a hundred percent hemp towel, but the innovation's not quite there because the supply has been so limited Um, so it's been, you know, such a, had such a bad rap and something we do is we don't even usually tell people, we say it's just a sustainable bath towel because there is still a negative connotation as it relates to hemp. And we don't want to prevent the lack of education from people being able to experience the benefits of the product. And so until, um, like we still have people say like, I get high if I use your towel. Well, this (laughs) seems silly. Yeah. It seems silly, but it's like a, a true Reality. fear. So yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm just become very cognizant of that and with our marketing, just making sure we tell people like, hey, it's just solving this problem, it's a better towel. And and then here's this, you know, here's this history of what has happened here. And so that has been really important. And yeah, as the supply increases, as the demand increases, I think we'll see more innovation. But I wanted to make sure that when utilizing a new fiber that we could match as much as possible, the product um, expectations that our customers are currently experiencing. And so doing a blend made the most sense. And I know you mentioned before that your goal is to source the materials there. Um, How much hemp are we growing in Texas these days? We've interviewed a few folks that are working with um, both growing and products made from hemp. So um, how is it going there in Texas? <laughs> yeah, it's good. I mean, so I've been in Texas for a year. We expanded the business here. Um, prior to that, I was in Jacksonville, Florida. So I had a pretty good pulse on farming in Florida and and hemp there. And it wasn't really moving the way that I thought it should be. And yeah, a lot of it is because in 2014 in the Farm Act bill, uh, when they were allowing universities and colleges to grow, there was a lot of investment in the companies and the type of seed that certain companies wanted to see to those universities. And so there was no one investing in fiber in Florida. And so moving to Austin and being here, I just went out two weeks ago um, to Texas Hemp Processors and they have seed in the ground and they are growing and fine tuning it. And so 
that was really cool and it's quite crazy because it's all against you know there's corn being grown everywhere for ethanol and then there's 100 plus acres of hemp right in the middle of it so it's happening it's 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 hard I mean it's such a hard like people can be so pessimistic about the hemp industry and there's so many people who have been in it for so long and it's like we're finally starting to make moves and see the visions happen but yeah there's a lot of people who take up space who talk about it but don't actually do it and um it's really important to see like who's actually has seed in the ground who actually has product that's like who I try to stick with Yes, and all the infrastructure, infrastructure. Yes, and all the infrastructure that's needed for the milling and whatnot. You know, we could talk all day about that. But I'm wondering. You mentioned funding. We've got about oh four minutes left, so I'm hoping we can touch upon that topic. Um, you had a Kickstarter, and then where did you go funding wise from there? Yeah. So after the Kickstarter, then we were able to really run the business off the sales of the product. And that was amazing. And then we started having more sales opportunities come in and needed more inventory. So I think that's a key component around the hemp industry and just textiles is there's a lack of funding for textile and fiber and um, traditional funding just doesn't really kind of work for a new startup. Um, So we brought on angel investors And that was like a scary experience, I think, um, just because you are used to a traditional way in which a loan works. And I think in in angel investment and and venture capital, it's really based off of the idea. It's based off the market opportunity, based off of a lot of different parameters. And so learning how businesses that require a lot of trial and error get funded I think it's a really important thing for new founders um, like myself, but that was um, how we were able to do that. And then now we're really focused on how do we grow the business based off sales opportunities and not just accessing capital. Yeah. And you're giving up some equity in your company usually, which can be (laughs) scary. Yeah, it, it is. But you know, you learn it's really about bringing on people who see that vision and it's better to have a smaller piece of the pie, but have a vision than to just have everything and be by yourself. And I think we, in this culture, have really said like, you can do everything by yourself, everything. And it's just not, it's not fun. And as long as you are able to have terms and expectations that are in alignment with the people you're working with, then that's, I think, a much better experience. And your team it sounds like you have a really strong team. How did you do that? Yes. I read a book um, that was recommended to me called The Buddha and the Badass. And I I was like, yeah, I highly recommend it. And I was like, how how do I find people? Like, do I find people who've done this before? Like, what do I do? And I think what was so critical is you get, you, you need to know the values of your company. You need to know the mission, the vision, and then you need to, communicate the vision and attract people who have that, that are in alignment with your values and have skill sets that you need at that time. And so that was the formula I adopted. And so when recruiting or talking or or going to a networking event, I was really clear about this division and if they liked it, okay, cool. These are like, I'll give an example, Ashley, our COO, 
I was like, this is the vision. She was like, I'm in, this is amazing. And I was like, great. And then it was like a slower process of like getting to know each other. But I was like, she gets the values of the brand. She has them. She has the skill set. And that makes sense to me. And that's been the routine in which we've we've hired from there. So we've run out of time. It's as awful. Yes. Like so many, many <laughs> questions. How can folks find you? Our website is enactglobal.com. And our Instagram is at enactglobal as well. A-N-A-C-T-Global.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your story and thank you for loving hemp. (laughs) Of course. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You betcha. And as always, we shall see you next week. This is Heartstock. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Let's go.